We direct your attention now to the Word of God, the book of Acts, the story of the early church. We're going through that particular book of the Bible this year. We are in chapter 16, and we begin reading in verse 4. As they, that is, Paul and Silas, and now young Timothy has joined the traveling party. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem, so that the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, now Luke, the writer of, the, of this book, has joined the band. This is the first time the first person plural is used. We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our saga continues. Last week we saw the men had gone up to Jerusalem to meet with the elders and the apostles and the congregation there to decide an issue. The issue was, what about salvation? Do you have to keep the law? Do you have to be circumcised? Does salvation come by obedience to the law, keeping all the commandments of God and all the stipulations that God had set forth to Moses? And then when you've kept them all and you've kept them all perfectly and you've kept them all personally and you've kept them all perpetually, after you've done all that, then you're saved? That's not gospel. That's not good news. Nobody can keep the law. In fact, the only thing the law does for us is show us how far short of the glory of God we fall. We don't love the Lord with all of our hearts. We don't keep the Sabbath. We don't honor our parents. We have hatred and murder in our hearts. There's lust in our eyes. There's avarice and greed and covetousness in our souls. We're thoroughly law-breaking creatures. If the gospel is, keep the law and thou shalt be saved, we're doomed. Fortunately, that's not the gospel. The gospel is someone else, another, a person, a man, a human being, a chosen man, an anointed man, a spirit 
filled man has walked in the paths of righteousness for our sake. He has kept the law. And he not only kept the law perfectly in his human life, but Jesus Christ of Nazareth then went another step and took our law breaking, our failures, our sins, our corruptions, our incapacities upon himself and in his body he bore our guilt and the sentence that is due the lawbreaker was executed in him on the cross. And now all we do, all we do, but we must do it is we look to him and live. Look and live. Look by faith and say in your heart, I have failed, but Christ has succeeded. He has borne my penalty. And come to him by faith, turning your back upon your sin, repenting of your sin in deep sorrow and remorse, turning from your sin and from yourself and from your failure and from your lostness and your helplessness to him for salvation. Now that's gospel. And that's the gospel that the men of Jerusalem concluded needed to be preached. And now this second missionary journey with Paul and Silas is they've launched out into the churches of Galatia where they had preached, where Barnabas and Paul had preached earlier, and they were going back to preach the gospel to the churches because they were looking to bring that message of grace to the churches, and they went through these two regions strengthening the churches. And it says that they, the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. I think that's a barometer for the church. A healthy church is increasing in faith. We're going from no faith to some faith, from weak faith to stronger faith, from strong faith to stronger faith still. We're moving from walking by sight to walking by faith. The just live by faith. They're given their life by their faith in Christ and then they are increased in faith. Faith is multiplied and fortified within the life. And as believers come to faith and walk in faith and live in faith and die in faith, they're strengthened. They're comforted. They're fortified. That's literally what those words mean in cognate. There's a foundation of faith within our souls where we've believed God so much and we've seen Him accomplish so much that we have fewer and fewer doubts and we move to stronger faith. And it says they increased in numbers. That's right. Where the gospel is preached, where people are fortified in faith, the numbers increase. God's call goes to people and they hear the gospel call and they believe and they're nurtured by those around them that bear testimony to the life of faith in God. And more people come to know the Lord and the numbers are increased. And that's what we see in the early church. In fact, it's a flame of fire that goes across the 
ancient world in the pages of the book of Acts where people are hearing the gospel and are believing by the droves. Do we see that in our day? Is it because churches are not increasing in faith? They're staying just about this deep and they're just about as weak as dishwater. Churches are not strong. Churches are not preaching the gospel. People aren't hearing the good news. All they're hearing is 10 easy steps to improve their lives one way or another. They're hearing jokes and humorous stories and shallow preaching. And they're not seeing Christ in His glory, in His sinless perfection, and in His atoning, sacrificing death on behalf of sinners. They're not seeing Christ lifted up. I hope not. Now, it's interesting that in this missionary strategy, Paul had a strategy. And here it is. It's in the passage just before the one we read. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we have proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. This is what Paul wanted to do. He had a very clear strategy in mind of what this missionary journey was going to look like. And so they launched out on that missionary journey. They changed partners, but they nevertheless moved out on that missionary journey. Barnabas took bark and went to Cyprus, which was half of the first missionary journey. Paul took Silas and went to Asia Minor and continued the other half of their first missionary journey to follow up, to check on the churches. There was a definite strategy, but there was a problem. Not only in missionary strategy do you have have strategy, but you have to allow for spontaneity. You need a plan, but then there's someone over the plan. There's someone behind the plan, and that is the Holy Spirit of God. The whole book of Acts is the story of the work of the Holy Spirit. We do not have a Christian gospel without Christ and without Christ and His Spirit working together. We do not have Christ on earth succeeding in what He did for us without the Holy Spirit being part of His life. Let me just list for you a a, a sketch of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, first of all, shadowed over the mother of Jesus, the conception of Jesus Christ in His humanity and deity was of the Holy Spirit. That which is in you, in Mary, in her womb was of the Holy Spirit. We have His anointing at the baptism when the voice of God came and the Spirit descended in the form of a dove. We have the Spirit working Christ over in terms of discipline. It was the Spirit of God, the Gospel tells us, that drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. And it was in His temptations, the Bible said, that He was victorious. And in His temptations is when He became qualified to be our Savior. Because He succeeded where Adam had failed. He was successful where we failed. Humanity had dropped the ball, but here comes the 
God-man and by the Spirit of God, he prevailed in the desert and the Spirit of God ministered to him. When he began his ministry shortly thereafter, he said very distinctly, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to preach the gospel. Those were Jesus' inauguration words. They're also a quotation from the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Bible says that Jesus was offered up in the Spirit. His sacrifice was due to the workings of the Spirit of God in enabling him to hold that position and to go to that cross inspired and and motivated and moved by the breath of God that moved within him and impelled him by the great love of the Father to go to the cross, to not turn his back, to not get up in that garden of Gethsemane and walk out, but to stay there on his knees saying, not my will, O Lord, but thine be done, and then go to the cross within a few hours. The Spirit of God was upon Jesus when he was raised from the dead. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that Jesus was raised from the dead by the Spirit of power. The powerful Spirit of God is what infused his dead body. He did not see corruption, but he was raised in power. When he talked to his disciples afterwards, he said, or actually just before, he went to the cross, he told them that he would send them another comforter. The Lord had been a comforter to his people. He had been the comfort and the strength and the leader of his disciple group. But he says, I'm going to send you another. And the word that you use there means another of the same kind. Just as I have been to you, the Spirit will be to you. It's necessary that I go because I am corporal. I can only be one place at a time. I can be with one or two of you. I can be with Peter, James, and John. Then I can be over here with Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel. And I can be in Jerusalem or I can be in Galilee. But I can't be everywhere but the Spirit of God, ubiquitous and omnipresent, can be in all of you everywhere all the time. I must go to the Father in order that the Spirit may come. And he looked at them and breathed on them in the wee hours of the morning and said, receive the Spirit. Then we know the story at Pentecost a few days later when the Spirit of God fell in might and power as a mighty sign there. And the Spirit of God has been at work all the way through. It was the Holy Spirit that, that prompted them to ordain elders and deacons. It was the Spirit of God that prompted them to preach the gospel. It's the Spirit of God that's been moving his, his apostles around in preaching of the gospel. And here Paul and Silas are ready to preach the gospel and they preached in Asia Minor and they decide, okay, we're going to keep moving on and we're going to keep going now west. And, and Paul said, we're going to finish Asia. We've started in the southern tip there, but we're going to move on up and we're going to get the, the, the big cities of Asia. We're going to come across Colossae and Laodicea. And finally, we're going to go to the great capital of Ephesus. And the scripture says, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. What in the world is happening here? Doesn't the Spirit of God want Ephesus and all of Asia to hear the gospel. He forbids them to preach in that region. 
in the title, Marcus said, that's a red light. (laughs) Well, let me leave you with this assurance. Not on this occasion, but it wasn't too long afterwards that Paul circled all the way around and came back to Ephesus and stayed there a significant amount of time and preached the gospel and taught daily. And the word of God says that all of Asia heard the gospel. See, the Spirit of God had a different missionary plan. Instead of them preaching across the churches of Asia, he was going to bring Paul around to Asia and from there to Ephesus. And from there, all of Asia was going to hear the gospel through those that studied under Paul in Ephesus. And Asia was going to end up being one of the strongholds of the Christian faith. Toward the end of the first century, it's going to be St. John that's going to write the book of Revelation. And it's a letter to the churches of Asia. God's going to save Asia. He's going to reach Asia Minor or Turkey today. He's going to do it in his time. The Spirit of God blows where it wills. The Spirit of God is a breath upon the earth that infuses the life of God into the creature in the image of God at his sovereign plan and will. Well, that's no problem. Let's keep going. So they keep plowing a little further west, but they start trending northwest and they keep going. And Paul looks at his map and says, you know what? There's this huge region up here, this huge region in the north that we need to reach. And it's the area of Bithynia, Pontus and Bithynia were huge territories up there that they had not been to yet. So they make their way over incredible terrain, mountains, rivers, uncivilized territories, badlands, and make their way toward Bithynia. But then it says here that they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. What's going on here? Another red light. The Spirit of God won't let them preach in Bithynia. Why not? I don't know. But let me give you the good news. Bithynia ended up hearing the the word. In fact, if you'll read the book of 1 Peter, Peter addresses his letter to the churches of Bithynia. They eventually, in the Spirit's own time and design, received the gospel and God planted great churches there, including in a town called Nicaea, which three centuries later would become the very name of the Nicene Creed, where we would have the Orthodox Christianity set forth. God's working on his own timetable and his spirit has put up two red lights, but now they're kind of stalled out. So they turn west and go due west and they're about to run out of real estate and they come all the way to the ocean and they stop at Troas. Troy, the ancient city of Troy, a a city about 300 years old, a Greek city, a very powerful city. And it was on the Asian side and they stay there. And the scripture says something happened. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there and our, our text says urging him, but it's the word call, it's parakleo, called, The Macedonian man called and said, help us. I don't know what the people in Ephesus and Asia were calling for. I don't know what the people in Bithynia were seeking after. But I know what the Macedonian man was calling for. 
He was calling for God to come and to help them. And this is the call of the needy and hungry heart. This is the call God hears. This is the call that God's ear is inclined to. Day and night is the soul that needs Him, that hungers and thirsts for Him and wants Him. And so this call came to Paul in the vision of this man of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is that huge region of northern Greece where Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great were from. It was the center province of the empire, the ancient Greek empire. And the the province below it was Achaia. And if they go that way, if Paul answers this call, they're going to go to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. You ever heard of those towns? Those are the great cities of the New Testament gospel. And this is going to be the first time they've heard the gospel in many of these places, as Paul is going to take the call. So the Macedonian call is to come help us. When you call, God will answer. Call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not. That's what's going to happen to the Macedonians. They called, God answered, and they're going to show them things that they had no clue about, that God's going to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving gospel of the truth of how he saves their souls and brings them into eternal life. And he's going to save them, as we saw a few weeks ago, he's going to save them by the whole households, Lydia, the Philippian jailer. There's going to be a big church in Philippi before you know it. God's going to raise up an incredible number of people. But first, there has to be the call, the cry out. That's the Macedonian man's call. That's the call of the hungry and seeking sinner, helpless in sin, needing rescue. Help me. There's another call, and that's the call of God, and we won't spend any time on it, but you know what it is. The call of God is go preach the gospel to every creature. How shall they believe except they hear the word? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, and how shall they hear the word of God except there be a preacher, a proclaimer of the gospel. And how shall the preacher be there except they be sent? God had sent Paul and Silas on their way, and now he calls them. And when the call of God had come to Paul and Silas to go and to follow the Spirit of God, red light here, red light there, but now green light, opening, open door open field, places that God is preaching, I mean, calling his people. When Paul will finally finish that circuit and get all the way around to Corinth, he'll stay there about 18 months in Corinth, and he gets kind of discouraged. Paul gets kind of discouraged. And if you've read the Corinthian correspondence, first and second Corinthians, back and forth, uh, you can see why Paul was a little discouraged at times. It got worse after Paul left. Do you remember how God encouraged Paul, Paul, I have many people in this city. Paul, you stay here. 
in this Greek town and you preach the gospel because there's people here that are mine. I have called them by my name. I have chosen them from all eternity. They are my people and they're here in Corinth and you need to stay here and preach the gospel long enough to where they can all hear the gospel. That's the call to preach. Now there's a third call I want to talk about as I conclude and that's the call to Christ. That's the call that comes to our individual hearts by the Spirit of God. The same Spirit that says, don't go here, don't go here, go here to the fertile ground, to the place where the hearing of the ear is sensitive and tuned, the place where I have enlivened and quickened the consciences of the people, where they will hear the very gospel that I have for them. Don't sow on the, the rocky soil. Don't sow on the wayside. Don't sow to the wind. Sow into the fertile ground. And it's the Spirit of God that calls His people and He prepares us. Listen to what Jesus said the Spirit would do with respect to the call to Christ. We're talking about the Holy Spirit of God working in the individual, calling them to salvation. Let me summarize that for you. God's call to the individual comes from the Spirit of God working within our conscience, working within our heart and our mind and the deepest recesses of our true selves to prepare us to hear the gospel. The, 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 the Word says, and this is all from the teaching of Jesus, Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes, He will testify of me. Spirit doesn't come talking about himself, doesn't talking about a wonderful spiritual experience. He comes talking about Jesus. The crucified, risen, reigning Lord. And he makes to your heart vivid and real this Christ. This Christ who has loved you and given himself for you. He will testify, Jesus said, of me. He says He will teach you all things. You've got a lot to learn in the Christian faith. You've got to learn two things. You've got to learn how bad a sinner you are and how great a Savior Jesus is. Those are two subjects that you'll work on your whole life. You'll learn just how lost and helpless you are in your current condition. And you'll learn what Jesus can do for you. He will sensitize you. He will take away the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a, a, a heart that's just brimming with nerve endings and make you sensitive to the things of God. No one knows the things of God, but the Spirit of God, Paul says in Corinthians, and He reveals them to us. Another thing the Spirit of God will do and not only testify of Christ and teach you all things, but He will bring to your remembrance all things that Christ has taught. I was listening to the Gospel of uh, Luke yesterday, uh, Max McLean, uh, driving down the road going to a, a, a meeting, and uh, I listened to most of the Gospel of Luke, and I got horrified listening. I'd forgotten some of the stuff Jesus had taught. Some of His words of judgment, when He talks about the vineyard, and He talks about the, the unworthy servants, and, and my goodness, Jesus had some incredible what would you think of as harsh teaching? Did Jesus really say that? And I've gotten so 
uh, soft and marshmallowy in my spiritual convictions that I'd forgotten that our Lord and Savior is a Savior with a backbone and a Savior with a righteous indignation that will not spare and will not tolerate evil. And I had to be reminded of something that Jesus taught. He, the Spirit brought it to my remembrance. said, He will guide you into all truth. Here's one of my favorite that Jesus said at the same time. He said, He will glorify me. It's one thing to testify of Jesus. It's another thing to glorify Jesus. We need to see Jesus as our Savior, but we need to see Jesus as beautiful. Jesus as holy, righteous, dwelling in the midst of sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, unethical business people, broken marriages and bad morals, numbered with the transgressors, and yet sinless. Which of you, he said, accuses me of sin? Even at his trial, they had to bring in liars and false witnesses because there was not a thing that could have been said that would in any way indict or convict Jesus of any. You need to see the beauty of what he did. The love that brought him down to earth and that held him here. I think I'd have gotten fed up and got out of there about halfway through the first temptation in the wilderness. The first pang of hunger that hit my stomach, I'd be headed for the nearest restaurant and I'd be looking for creature comfort. But not Christ. Christ knew He was coming to bear that for you. And He stayed with the mission. Then the Holy Spirit will do three other things. That is, He will convince the world. Convince. He will persuade. He will convict. Indict. Charge. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I'm not sure all of us have really been convicted of those things in our lives. We haven't been convicted really of the sin that's in our life. The pervasiveness of sin, but also the pettiness of sin that we need to avoid. The stuff that just besets us day and night, that just sullies our Christian testimony. sin. He will convict us of righteousness. He will show us the way in which we are to walk. He will make the law of God beautiful to us. It will not be a yoke of bondage for we're not saved by it. The curse of the law has been borne by Christ, but the commandment of the law is now beautiful. They're not grievous. The law is good and it's holy. It's perfect. And he will show us righteousness. What if everybody you knew was a perfect person? Would your life be easier? I'd be happy to be a sinner if everybody around me was just really, really nice and really good and loving and caring and long-suffering and temperate. My life would be easier. And so would all of society if we would follow the basic rubrics of the righteous commandments of God. And that's why we have the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in Romans, in order that the righteous commandment of the law might be fulfilled in you. That's why the Holy Spirit comes. He convicts us of righteousness and He convicts us of judgment. 
There's a judgment. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 and 2, you read it carefully, there's a whole scope of argument that simply says not one of us is going to escape. Every man, woman, boy, and girl will give an account of their life before God Almighty, before the great judgment seat of God for every word, thought, and deed in this life. Do you have an inkling of how that trial will go? Does it dawn on you where you stand when you're standing in the light of the holy God? Will you even be able to stand? And what if you're standing there by yourself? Every individual person must give an account of themselves before God. There's a judgment day. Oh, I, I don't want to be standing there by myself. I don't want any of you standing there by yourself. I want you to be standing there clothed, completely clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Blood washed from the crown of your head to the tip of your toes. Clean, righteous. And hear the verdict. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. 